In a recent statement of principles, leaders of the national conservatism movement advocate ideas they say are necessary for recovering and maintaining our freedom, security, and prosperity. The fate of our civilization, they say, hangs in the balance. What are these principles that they advocate? How do they relate to American ideals? What philosophic ideas shape this movement? Today, we'll take a look at that statement of principles in order to understand what this movement is about. Welcome to New Idea Live, podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. I'm Ilan Jerno. Joining me today is my colleague, Nikos Soterakoupoulos. Hey, Nikos. Hi, Ilan. Hi, everyone. I thought a good place to start is with who and who's uh, part of this national conservatism movement. What are they about? And why is this important? Why, why do you think this is worth analyzing? So conservatives have understood something important, that the reason that left is winning big in the culture wars is that the left has a set of ideas and a view of the good that is portraying to the world. So the left is inspiring people, and particularly young people, whereas the conservative movement is not inspiring. So conservatives have engaged in some soul searching in terms of what is what will be our projection of ideas and of the vision of the good and national conservatives have come up with a suggestion and this suggestion is the ideas we'll discuss today now what is the this movement so this is a loose network of intellectuals of some politicians of some businessmen and of some journalists that are united by one idea and this idea is that the united states need to return to more conservative values and they need to return to the customs and the values and the habits and the way of life that made this country great as Trump put it in 2016. Now, how would we describe this movement, its worldview in an answer? So if the main point that national conservatives are making is that the reason why conservatism is losing is because it has aligned itself with liberalism. So this alliance was historically necessary in terms of defeating communism in the Cold War, but had a very destructive result for conservatives. And this was that despite the political victories, like the eight years of uh, Ronald Reagan's presidency or the, uh, the, the wins of Thatcher in, the, in, in England, conservatives actually lost by being part of this alliance. So if you look things in retrospect, you see that in the eyes of national conservatism, liberalism won and conservatives lost. And this is why liberalism has as its starting point only the freedom of the individual. So what national conservatives say is that the freedom of the individual is not enough in, if you want to maintain, to conserve, what makes a country what it is. And this is its values, again, its traditions, its religion, and its way of life. So the point is, we need to, re to realize that liberalism and the emphasis it places on the freedom of the individual is not a winning strategy for conservatism. Actually, it's the opposite. It is the end of conservatism. And if conservatism needs to be rediscovered, if conservatives wants to win again, it needs to set aside liberalism. It needs to set aside individual liberty as a guiding principle. 
Yeah, just to build on what you're saying, that when you say liberalism, I, that I hear, and I think this is what they mean, it's, it's classical liberalism, or the more individualistic perspective, not the way liberalism is understood commonly in the US, which is more of a sort of left-leaning perspective or, or not exactly, uh, it's not the most helpful way to characterize it, but it's the more individualistic perspective. There's one other thing I would say about the, why this is significant is just to sketch out some of the context you were, you were saying, which is the soul searching among conservatives and the broader movement. Here, I think it, when you zoom out a bit from national conservatism and this document that we wanna talk about, there, the soul searching is, you can put it that way, but you can also put it as there's a kind of jockeying or a, a rivalry among different factions within this loose movement, this conservative movement in the US. And I think it's true in other parts of the world but who's gonna define this movement in the years to come? So is, the shadow of Trump is still there. There's real questions about what that means going forward. But I think national conservatism has been rising as a concerted effort to, to define this movement in the years to come. And I, I agree with your characterization. This is part, the way they put it themselves is, we're turning away from the old model of conservatism, which was this fusion of different elements with some, and in their view, too much individualism combined with sort of the more traditional perspectives. So I think part of what's fascinating about looking at this movement is to get a glimpse of what could be the future of American conservatism and, and more than American conservatism because they, some of the conferences this movement has held are being overseas and they attract people from Europe. So th there is this ferment, I think, intellectually, uh, intellectually might be a bit strong, but um, there's this ferment about what is it we're going to be doing and some of the threads that we'll, we'll untangle in this conversation about the role, what is the nature of the government, what, what is a good government, what is the right kind of approach to politics. Uh, I think there's a lot at play here and it's not like the national conservatives, conservatives are the only ones doing this. I think they're actually jockeying with even more religious people and people who are um, really committed to ideas that are hostile to individuals. But so that's a bit about wh where we are, but. And let's throw to, in some names yeah. also so that people understand that, uh, ha that how appealing this has been to many people in the periphery of the movement. So for example, in the last two, so the main intellectual of the movement is Yoram Hazoni. You might have seen the discussion he had with Yaron Brook in Lex Friedman's. So back in, in February, but this be, beyond the, let's say, the intellectuals, there are also people like, you can see Dave Rubin, for example, in their conferences. In their next conference, which is in two weeks from now, Rob DeSantis is giving a keynote. You have Peter Thiel, you have a journalist from Daily Wire. So it is attracting quite big names in the, in the, conservative, in the conservative movement. And as you said, the reason, I think the reason is that they are among the ones who understand that we need to come up with a new set of principles. Now, what we're going to discuss today is, are these principles actual principles, or are they actually raising more questions than the one they're answering? So let's dive into these, uh, this set of statements that they recently released. Yeah, I want to, one, one other thought I want to just throw in here is, you characterized it as the, their analysis is the, the past approach, this Reagan and Thatcher model where there was a, a, an accommodation for more individualist perspectives 
that was a mistake. We need to move away from that. And I think that is definitely how they view it. I, just as a framing point, I think it's important that I don't agree with that characterization. I don't think that is the essential law of conservatism, why it hasn't dominated as they would like it to see why. It, and I think it's, it's actually the other way around. It's that to the extent there were individualist elements, they were the better elements of conservatism such as it was. And, and I agree with Ayn Rand's assessment of conservatism as she knew it through 1980, uh, 81, which was throughout that period, conservatism was moving away from individualism and from a perspective on the value of freedom. And we can talk a bit more about her analysis. So her analysis was there isn't, there isn't enough individualism. It's a betrayal of individualism. I think if you look at it from the time when she passed and she wasn't commenting on the movement any longer, I think that's just accelerated to the point where the, the idea that the, the problem with conservatism was the presence of individuals. I think that's exactly the opposite. It's, it's, it's hard to imagine why anyone would believe that it was that individualistic. It's been moving so far away from it for years now. So there's just- And uh, even- okay, yeah, Go on. So, so, so on, on this point, so even on an empirical, very obvious level, Hazoni, who makes this point, is wrong. So if you look the world, let's say from 1990, because he said when after Reagan and Thatcher, what we were left with is just this empty individualism and this liberalism without the conservative principles. But what individualism and what liberalism? Since the 90s, for example, we had the growth of the nanny state. We have the growth of legislation and regulations that have to do with how people lead their private lives. Or we had things like, simple things like the smoking ban or uh, uh, sugar taxes. So even these very simple examples make it clear that the consensus has been against individual liberty and against more freedom in the way we live their lives. So from the very, very start, we see that the way, the context they set for what has been the problem in the last 30 years is problematic and it's actually wrong. Yeah, and we could talk, it, we could talk more about why it's wrong, but it, it, one of the things you've been interested in for a long time, and I, I have an interest in this too, is just analyzing the rise or the, the more uh, moving to the foreground of tribalism in the culture. And that's been going on for decades. And it's, it's true both on, among progressives and it's true among people who are more conservative. So if, if that is true, and I think you can demonstrate that it is, how is it possible that you, the criticism is there's too much focus on the individual? In fact, it's who, who actually is advocating for that? I think it's, that, that's just not a, uh, a reasonable characterization, but let's dive into what they're advocating. I think it's, there's a lot to say about this statement of principles. And why don't we start with what, so I think there are nine or seven, I forget how many bullets in this thing, and you can find it online. It was published in a, a American conservative magazine, I think it was. And yeah. it, the one of the names to drop here for people who are interested in this, you mentioned Hazoni and some of the other people associated with this. You can look at the signatories of this statement, which is interesting, we might come back to that later on. I wouldn't assume that everyone who signed on to this is a, uh, super consistent advocate and as committed as Hazoni and some of the other intellectuals associated with it. But they, they, they agree with it enough of it to put their name to it, which is significant. And the 
organization behind this, which Hazoni is the chairman on, is the Edmund Burke Foundation. This is the organization that puts on the conferences that you mentioned and is uh, the, behind this statement of principle. So let's talk about national conservatism. So it's, let's talk about the national part of this before we get more into what is what conservative about this and what does that mean? So help us understand what they, under, what they think of as the role of government, where does that come in? What is the nationalism element of this? How do you see that? So nationalism is the starting point if one wants to understand national conservatives for two reasons. The one reason is methodological. So the way that national conservatives view the progress of history is what they call empiricism, which is we see what works through trial and error. We keep what works, we leave aside what does not work. Why through trial and error? Because the only other possible solution would be the unacceptable for conservative solution of trying to draw universal principles. So conservatives believe that because we human beings are fallible, because reason has its limits, we cannot know what is the good for every occasion and for every time. So the best we can do is find something that works for a particular time, for a particular place, within a particular context. This means that what is good for England might not be good for Italy and is definitely not good for Iran. This is why nationalism is important because it, this nation, this idea of the nation gives us the space to test and slightly better every now and then these ideas that we, uh, that we have inherited from our fathers. If these ideas are good, we keep them. If they're not good, we only do slightly changes because we shouldn't be ambitious enough in doing huge changes because who are we to know what is the big change that needs to come? That's the one reason why nationalism is important. The other reason why nationalism is important is how they view the units of history. And for the national conservatives, the subject, the unit of history is not the individual. The unit of history is the group. And this is why Hazoni in his book, in his latest book, Rediscovering Conservative, says that Marx was onto something when he said that history is the history of group struggle. So which group though? We start with the family, which is the main unit. Notice, not the individual, the family. Then we go to the clan, which is the extended family or a, a, a grouping together of some families. Then we go to the tribe and then we go to the nation. So the nation is this context with which you pacify different tribes that come together because they have common heritage in terms of language or religion. And this is the way society operates. The starting point is the group. And the main group here is, again, the family, the clan, the tribe or the nation. So these are the two reasons, the one, the methodological one, the other, the, let's say the more metaphysical one on why they view nationalism as the starting point. Yeah, I think it's important that there is, I mean, individualism is mentioned, I think once or twice in the whole statement of principles. And when it's mentioned, it's to be attacked. It's, this, is, this is the source of a lot of problems in their view. And it, maybe we'll come back to this. It's interesting to think, what do they regard as individualism? And I think there's a caricature, if not a straw man or, or some non-accurate uh, presentation of what that is. 
I want to pick up on what you said about universalist ideologies, which is something that in Hazoni's work and in other statements from national conservatism, and in this document, they really distance themselves from, we're not about universal ideologies. And further, it isn't just that they don't think methodologically you can, you should follow them. They don't think they're possible. They don't think so fundamentally and philosophically. Uh, if you look at Hazoni's book, The Virtue of Nationalism, he makes a strong argument. I don't think it's a valid argument, but he, he goes after the idea that the human mind is capable of reaching universal truths about anything. I mean, I think pr primarily he thinks in political space, but it's not clear why there would be a difference in other spaces. So he, and, and so that's one aspect of what is behind this opposition. So the individual isn't really competent to know the world. That's one aspect of it. The second aspect is that in Hazoni's telling of this, and you see it in some of the statement, uh, some of the elements of the statement, if you advocate some universal ideology, some universal set of ideas, put aside ideology, because that's a term with a lot of negative connotations that people have trouble processing. But suppose you write a declaration of independence, suppose you're Thomas Jefferson, and you think that it's true that every individual is, uh, ha has the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's a universal claim. Now, how it's implemented and whether you're being consistent about it, that, put, put that aside for a moment. If that's a universal claim, that would violate what Hazoni thinks the human mind can accomplish and can do, and that he, he's against that kind of thing. And it's not only that he thinks that's not possible, he thinks that that is the source of a phenomenon that he calls imperialism. So this is the, one of the evils of the world. And so he's a, so in advocating for nationalism, so a focus on the nation as the collective and the source of uh, value and, and what we should pay attention to, it's in contrast to this idea of imperialism, which is, as he characterized it, we're going to go around the world and impose our universal ideas. And so in this category, he will put communism uh, as that's an imperialist ideology. It claims universal truth and it's wrong. And look at all this. And there's a lot wrong with communism, and it, it, but I don't think it's because it's making a universal claim. It's because it's, it's a false ideology. But then the move from the opposition to imperialism goes to, well, that's true even of so-called liberal imperialism. And here, what, what, what is an example of that? So he talks about the Iraq war in his book, but in other contexts, it's the European Union is seen as an imperial body and some parts of the UN are seen as imperialist bodies. And I just wanna, we can dig into this if you're interested, but I, what I find really interesting here is the logic of this means that you put uh, the EU and communism in the same category. They're both imposing an, a universal ideology, but they're so very different and that's not really the way to group them. And so his animus, his, his hostility is, basically equal to those in, in a certain way that they're both trying to and, and i have a lot of criticisms of the eu you live under the eu and i think you have criticisms of the eu i don't think it's in the same moral category as what the crimes of communism are and i don't think i don't think it's right to think of them in those terms so there's something really philosophically off about this perspective that human beings can't reach universal truths and that if you make a claim to those universal truths about how to live or what, what the world should look like politically, then that puts you on a path to being Stalin or, or in his view, someone leading that you, and there's something really wrong about that because it's creating, well, you, obviously you don't want that. So therefore you need nationalism. And that's creating, in my view, a false alternative. 
So his poster boys for enlightenment liberalism are in a way the Jacobins. And his, so his train of thought is, if you, figure, if you think you figure out what is good for everyone, you want to impose it on everyone. Therefore, since you know what is good for everyone, then it's some steps away from the guillotine. But it's very interesting. What is the main reason why for Hazoni making universalist claims is wrong? And this is why it puts you in the position of God. And this is a hubris which is unacceptable for Hazoni. This is a hubris which is unacceptable for 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 uh, conservative uh, religious uh, people because it comes down to who are you to know the best you can know is not what is true but what is truer in one particular context so notice something very interesting here national conservatives are telling us that uh, postmodernism and, and all these neo-marxist as they call them trends is taking over the culture and yet we find ourselves reading the, neo, the national conservatives and wondering, am I reading here national conservatives or postmodernists? Because they're making some similar claims. They're saying that knowledge is local, that knowledge is relative, and that knowledge is dependent on the context. Now, Hazoni knows that he's going to be attacked as a postmodernist, and his line of defense is, but we are not relativists because there is such a thing as the abs as the big truth so to speak but this only comes from that so when it comes to human knowledge in a way we're in the same box with the postmodernists with things that knowledge of the good has to do with one's heritage with one's environment with one context what is good for me might not be good for you and all that stuff but somewhere down the line there is an absolute truth but we leave this to god we leave this to to revelation or to instinct or to Moses who told us some thousands of years ago, however you want, you, you want to get uh, to that knowledge. So I think this is where we need to really focus and people who think that national conservatives are the answer to the decay that we're living today, they need to ask themselves, could it be that national conservatives are way too similar with the monster, the epistemological monster they're trying to attack, which is uh, which is postmodernism or neo-Marxist or whatever. Yeah, one one quick thought before we move on, because I think I like to dig in more into this the role of religion in their political thought, and to, to your point about how this is the source of God is going to hand down some things that are true, then we can not question. Um, just as a passing observation, the. In, in things I've read from Hazoni, it doesn't come up exactly in this document, but it, it, there's, it's an undercurrent in the document. There is a, a fantasy perspective on what tribalism is and this whole idea that the family and the collective are the, you, you can say that the family is the unit of society. It's not true. And you can say that the nation is the unit of society. And that's, I think it's not true. Uh, but in Hazoni's perspective, the tribes and the families and the clans sort of merge together and that, that's sort of the, the, the combination of them is the nation and, and the part of what a nation is about is the give and take and you, you make deals and you kind of pacify the, the different tribes. And he characterizes all this in, in sanitized terms. There, there isn't any sense of, well, have you actually seen how tribes behave? Do you, do you understand what it means? Even in, in a mixed economy where the tribes are more 
pressure-seeking groups and seeking pull and, and political favors, that is really ugly. That, that is not something you should be advocating. And then in the more uncivilized forms of what tribalism looks like, it is, it's cutthroat. I mean, literally, it's not something you should hold up as this, the, the foundation for a society that's gonna be stable, prosperous, or beneficial to anyone in it. But let's, let's put that aside, because I think the, the core here is this perspective on what a good society looks like. And you've, you've made the point that I think we should develop further. It's this idea that religion is really central to what this movement is about. And so we take, uh, we can go into some of the claims. Um, their view, and uh, this is a quote, and maybe we can put it up on the screen, is that they have a, a section called God and Public Religion. And what they're saying is that, and this is a quote from the Statement of Principles, no nation can long endure without humility and gratitude before God and fear of his judgment that are founded in authentic religious tradition. And it goes on, and there's another part of the document where it says, uh, public life should be rooted in Christianity and its moral vision, which should be honored by the state and other institutions of public and private life. Now, this is in the context of if, if the majority of people in a society are Christians, therefore the state should honor Christianity and we'll leave some room for minorities. And, but the implication is that if it's some other Abrahamic religion that's dominant numerically, that's what the state should endorse. So this is an unabashed claim to religious government. And it's not, well, we need prayer in the schools. We need the government to endorse religion. The idea of a, a separation of church and state, an innovation, a really powerful innovation that came in with the founding of America that was based on a recognition of what, how destructive it is to have religion in government from the experience of Europe's history, all that is swept aside. And you get this assertion that religion is the necessary basis for a good society. Um, and I think this fits in with this collectivism and the idea that we're going to be handed our values from a supernatural source and God's going to tell us. And therefore, that's what the government should be focused on. So why do we need religion? Is, you alluded to it. Uh, we need it to have a very public role in life because it's the only possible source of morality for national conservatives. So a state without a particular religion that is to be promoted is a state without morality, is a society that's gonna disintegrate. That's their first point. Their second point is not that we need to insert religion in American life, is that we need to reinsert it because they have a completely different view of the American history. And Hazoni believes that it was never the case that state and religious were separate, but this is just the development of uh, the last uh, 70, 80 years. So, but here we have to enter a historical discussion whether he's right or wrong. But here's the third issue that comes up with this call to bring back religion. Why is Hazoni so, and the rest of the national conservatives, so eager not to promote religion in terms of, these are some good ideas, follow it in your private life, but the state needs to push this down to your throat. Because they recognize that if religion is not supported by state policies, religion is going to disintegrate. And Hazoni recognizes this straight in his book. He says it only took the two generations 
from religion to be lost from private life once religion was lost from public life. And my question is this, if the set of ideas that is religion is so weak and is so not useful in terms of uh, people's lives or whatever, that it's going to be lost if it's not pushed by the state. Isn't this a statement that is against the appeal? Is, is, a, is a statement that would raise a lot of questions to my head if I was a religious person. Why do I need the state to push this religion? Why do I need the state to force, in a way, this religion to people? So we also see a lack of self-confidence, a, a lack of uh, being comfortable with engaging in an argument on why religion is important for people's lives. Because if it is important, why do you need the state to force it on people? Well, I don't know exactly how they would answer that, but I can, I can think of an answer that might be consistent with their view. And it has to do with their analysis of what you brought up earlier, which is their perspective on the culture as captured fundamentally by the postmodern and the anti-religious forces and I can think of an answer that would be, well, the only, you know, the forces against us, the anti-collective, the, uh, the liberal, progressive, whatever, how they label them, they, they control the universities and the schools and the media. Well, of course, if you have all that poison being injected into the bloodstream, what can you expect? Therefore, religion needs to be protected. I, I don't think that's really, I don't know how they would take it, but that seems like a, a position they could take which puts the burden on, well, people aren't good enough to recognize that religion is true and they're being corrupted by this sort of postmodern perspective. But I, I'd be curious if you've seen things- They take it a step further. It's not only that it needs to be in education, it also needs to be in our laws to prohibit things that very obviously violate religion. So there would be a question, for example, what would be the what would be the situation with homosexuality in a national conservative society? Because we see in their literature quite often mentioning that the relaxation of uh, the sexual uh, ethics and the acceptance of uh, of uh, different lifestyles or different sexual choices is part of the moral decay of our society. So then the question is if religion has a place in law. What would be the situation, for example, with, uh, with uh, gay marriage? And what would be the situation with uh, promoting alternative uh, sexualities? My prediction is that their answer would be no. For example, we see uh, national conservatives claiming that obscenity laws or pornography is one of the individual freedoms that is not more important than the maintenance of the moral cohesion of a state. So in this case, if you want, for example, to, to have freedom of speech when it comes to promoting these ideas or to promoting uh, art that can be considered uh, pornographic or whatever, tough luck, your uh, freedom stops when Hazoni's priorities about the moral cohesion of the nation begins. I think I agree with that. I would just make the point even more strongly, maybe, which is in this statement of principles, there are more than clues to what it would look like. So take their view of what government should do. There's two aspects of it. One is 
what the government should be promoting. And there's a whole section on family and children. So this is the, if you, if you think of the, the notion of family values, which conservatives have been pushing for, and I put air quotes around that for a long time, that was a big byword in the 1980s and 1990s and onward. Then this statement of principles advocates that not only is that something good, but, and to quote the statement, economic and cultural conditions that foster stable family and congregational life and child raising, child raising are priorities of the highest order implication. This is a job for government to step in. So incentivize people, make it possible for them to have families. So you can see their, their positive claim is that the family and child raising are central to what the conception of a good life is and what the government should be doing. And then to turn that around, the other side of this is what you're, you're asking about things that they regard as immoral or di uh, divergent from the traditions that they regard as handed, presumably handed down from, from religion. There's another statement in this uh, document that we're looking at, and that I think tells you what's gonna happen to whatever is deemed to be immoral or, or wrong. And, and here it, it goes, um, let me give you this quote. Uh, in those states or subdivisions, political subdivisions, in which law and justice have been manifestly corrupted, or in which lawlessness, immorality, and dissolution reign, national government must intervene energetically to restore order. Now notice what's happening here. They're, they're putting together lawlessness, which is actually a function of government to eradicate, and they're putting alongside that immorality and dissolution. Those are very different things. It's not the government's job to come into your house, Nikos, and tell you what you're eating is immoral, what you're watching is immoral, what you're reading is immoral, and you must stop it. That's not the government's function if you take the life of the individual and their judgment seriously, as the, the original American conception has it. This is exactly what you would expect from a religious perspective, which is we're, in, we're burdened with great purpose, right? We have God telling us what is right and wrong. And we think government has to be the, the, uh, the vessel through which we enact this. And so if you're, you should have children and we're gonna incentivize you and foster that, whatever that looks like. And if you're doing the wrong things, not just putting aside illegal things, because that's, I mean, that's within the scope of a proper government's role, but we're gonna step in and have government intervene where there's quote immorality and dissolution so and who's to decide that i think no question that this is going to be a religiously defined set of values and you should peel a little bit deeper into this and i think this is really uh part of the philosophic uh base of this view which is it's not you who decides what is right or wrong in your life, what is wrong or right to do, you're not the one who can judge that. It's an authority figure who hands out what is what you should do. It's a commandment view, it's a duty perspective. And that values are not something that people come to understand and identify by their own judgment, which is what Ayn Rand's perspective is, it just put very briefly, it's we're gonna tell you what values are. They're, they're gonna be things you should follow, not question. And then the agency of government is there to enforce them. 
Now, when I when we were talking about this before today's broadcast, we, uh, in pre preparation, we both had the thought, well, doesn't this sound like a place that actually exists today? Now, it's not a Christian nation, but it, and you're, you're smiling. And it, it's, and I don't mean this to be like a, a reductio ad absurdum, but if you take seriously both elements of this, how does this really distinguish from the Taliban regime? How does this, how does this distinguish from the Iranian regime or the Saudi regime? Now, there are obviously differences, but in the sense of religion's role and the denigration of the individual's life and mind and judgment, these are on the same wavelength. And why is this the case? Because they're talking literally about the morality police. But you said something in terms of who is to decide. The answer of nationalist conservatives is definitely not you. And I want to emphasize on this because there are so many good people or people who were, we supposed were people with good ideas that fall for this vision of national conservatives. And, or there's some, there might be people who say, look, we're more or less or in the same team here. But listen to this sentence by Yoram Hazoni in terms of how much he values your independent thinking and then judge if we are in the same team with these people. So here's a quote, a very small quote from, uh, from, his, from his book. Rather than conducting his own search for truth in a manner that is largely independent of what other believes and of what others believe and do, the conservative finds that human beings conduct their search for truth as members of a tradition. So compare this to the view that, for example, Ayn Rand gives, that your point of reference is reality. Your arbiter of truth is reality. And in, if you have this confidence that I can reach the conclusion of what is true, you can say to a person who advocates X religious practice, no, you are wrong. I'm not going to live my life that way because my judgment for this and this and this reason tells me that it is false and this other thing is good. But what is Hazoni saying? He's saying that the way you reach a conclusion is not having as your horizon reality and truth, but the consensus of the group. So in, in some ways, not actually not in some ways, openly, your horizon, your point of reference is other people, the tribe, the group. And again, compare this vision with the heroic vision that we see, for example, in, uh, in Ayn Rand's novels, in Howard Rourke's, how he views lives in the fountainhead. And the one I find it so appealing, and the other, the one that says that basically make sure that you fit to what other people think. Why are other people right and I am wrong? I might be wrong, but prove to me why I am wrong. The mere fact that I go against the tradition or that I go against the majority on a particular topic or that I go against the majority of the past, which is what national conservatives support. Why does this make me wrong? And what a horrible way to view yourself. What would this do to your self-esteem to say, well, I'll have to suck it. I'll have to go with the majority or the religious authorities because who am I to know? This is destructive for your self-confidence, for your self-esteem, for your ability to live a good life. So I, I think now that now we have enough evidence to say that 
no, we are not on the same team with these people. And this, the ideas of these people is not the way to win the culture war against the left or whatever. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I don't know if your view was that there was a question about that, but I don't think there was. When, when someone goes up on stage and tells you the problem with the last 25 years is there's been too much individualism. I, I think that person is disconnected from reality. And when they tell you that individualism means being self-indulgent, they're not really trying to understand what individualism is. They're trying to create, a, I think, a scapegoat that then pushes people towards their view, which I think there's, uh, there's a sort of agenda that's interesting to, to unpack here in the statement of principles. So we can come back to some of the other claims in the statement of principles, but I want to just point out you know, we, to tie it back to the point from earlier in the conversation about th this is, I think, a, an attempt to steer the conservative movement for the future and to try to claim leadership and, and influence in it. And I think that explains some of the more anodyne and unobjectionable things in this document. So there's, there's a whole thing in it about rule of law. And okay, find me someone who's against rule of law. What does it actually, what does that look like? I don't think any, it'd be hard to find anyone who's against rule of law. And there are things about what that actually looks like and how sincere people are about that. But when you put that in the document, I think part of what they're trying to convey is there are things you can agree with and still be part of what we're about. And this is an attempt to bring people in who might not be sold on the idea of nationalism or that we need to eject whatever vestiges of individualism and uh, uh, commitment to uh, free markets there might have been in the past. So that's one element of it. I think the other one is has to do with the role of religion. So we've been arguing, at least I, I've been making the point that religion is really central to what this movement is about by their own statements. And that connects with their authoritarian approach. I think it leads to a society where there isn't really freedom. Uh, there aren't rights, they're just permissions. So this leads to a, a statement in this uh, document that has to do with what you most charitably might take as uh, a concession to religious freedom. It's not really a right, but there's a claim in this document that, and I'll just read it out, it's that adult individuals should be protected from religious or ideological coercion in their private lives and in their homes. This comes in the same document that tells you that the government must intervene energetically where there's immorality or dissolution. So it's not really how those two go together. Is, is, is there a lot writing on the qualification that it's okay in your private lives and in your home, but it's not okay publicly? How, what is the principle that in, that justifies that. It's not clear that you can make that kind of claim because if there's immorality, what difference does it make if it's happening behind your front door or in your outside your front door? If it's immorality and that's fundamentally wrong according to God's commandments, why shouldn't the government step in? If the neighbor can hear you committing immorality through the open window, what, what's so? So there's red out of the, without integrating it all together, you can take this as, well, they're gonna allow some religious freedom that you're not gonna be required to be a Christian, you're not gonna be required to give up your, that might be a, a one way people, I think, misread it, but there is no conception in this document that the individual has a right to be free. There are just allowances and permissions and 
I take this example of being protected from religious or ideological coercion. It's not a claim to a right. It's just, they should be. Maybe we'll try that, but I think it's partly to appeal to people who are maybe not as religious and, and maybe are not fully comfortable with the rest of this statement of, doc, uh, of principles and thereby bringing in more people to this movement by making it seem more palatable than otherwise it would be. So this is sort of a concession designed to build support. I think you can see other things in here too uh, along those lines. So there's a certain agenda of building uh, support from people who are maybe not as committed to the central tenets of what this is about. And it's interesting to notice the difference in Hazonis and national conservatives understandings of rights to the understanding of rights to someone like Ayn Rand, for example, where to put it very, very in a very simple way, Rand would say that rights are the result of what is our needs as a human being if we are to lead a life guided by our mind, that the enemy of the mind is force and therefore other people should not uh, should not intervene with uh, with uh, with how you want to to use your mind and to to act on this. That was not a very great uh, presentation of Iran's theory of rights. But let me get to the national conservatives' view of rights, which is that rights are in a way a consensus. Rights is you have a right on something if society agrees that this is right. Which means, again, that if your judgment goes against the judgment of society, then you don't really have a right. And Hazoni mentions this directly in his book. And also, every right is conditional. What does it mean it's conditional? Well, there are conflicts of interest all the time because, again, society is created by groups and what is good for one group might be bad for another group. Therefore, your rights have to be balanced with the rights of other groups. Here's an example, a quote from Hazoni, a short one. Notice that when the government guarantees a, cer a certain right, it inevitably means defending one freedom, which is desired by some, by suppressing a different freedom that is desired by others. Which freedom should be defended by the government cannot be determined without taking into account considerations of justice and peace, the general welfare and the cohesiveness of society and the ability of the nation to mount a common defense, end of quote. What does this mean in practice? It means that if one of the things that you consider as your right, for example, your freedom of speech or your freedom to uh, engage in sexual relations with whomever you want, if it goes against, quote, the cohesiveness of society, tough luck, then it's not a right anymore. Because again, for Hazoni, rights come out of the consensus of the others. Rights are a gift that your fellow tribesmen or your, the, the groups around you kindly handle to you, and it can be revoked if it goes against the group. So again, if you think that the left is a threat for your rights, but you think that this is the solution, there's a lot of cell sorting that you need to do, to do if, dear listener, you find these national conservatives appeal as the proper answer to the left. Yeah, and we should probably wrap up and let people know that if they have questions, they can join us in Clubhouse. We'll be moving there once we finish this live broadcast. We're happy to talk more about some of these issues. One thing that 
just to bring up your point, you're saying that for people who find this appealing as a contrast or a solution to what they see as the problem of the, the progressive or the postmodern phenomenon, have you described the wokeism? One thing that I think is true in the criticism of the woke phenomenon is that it has a lot of the features of a religious movement. There's ex excommunicating people, or as it's called, canceling them. I don't like that term, but that's what it really is. The analog is to excommunicate them. You shun them if they don't have, if they don't follow the orthodoxy. It's, it's brutal in the sense that it doesn't really take context into account. It's just edicts, you're out. If you, you one wrong word and you're a heretic. So that, and I think that we've talked about this in other podcasts that there's definitely strong features of it that are similar to the way religion operates in its worst forms and, and when it has power. And, and I think that's a valid line of attack against that phenomenon, which is it, it's not concerned with the facts. It's not concerned with your judgment. It's just, we're gonna enforce a certain kind of view we can't justify it. There's no basis for it. It's just, it's a dogma and step out of line and you'll suffer. And if, if that's one major part of what's going on in the culture, the solution isn't to turn to a movement that's saying we need religion in, the, in government. We need to define everything in terms of God's law. That's just another form of the same thing even if it's dressed up to seem like it's a solution or an alternative, it, it isn't. I mean, that, that is really what we have on both sides of this supposed alternative. One side is doing it in, in, with the prioritization of, it has to do with dogmas about race or, or, or uh, political positions. The other one is just straight out religious. Uh, and, and I think there's a, there's a, it's easy to see in some ways that the woke phenomenon is, is got religious features, but we need to take seriously religion unvarnished when it's really telling you what it's trying to do. And that's, that is really problematic. So it's not like, um, oh yeah, we've made a major discovery that the, there's religious features in the woke phenomenon. Yes, that is true and important and, and central to understanding it. The, you, the, 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 the alternative to that can't be just a, a revival of what the founders, I think, were really worried about, which is the kind of religious strife that was true of Europe for a long time that led to, certainly not to peace or prosperity or human flourishing, was the opposite. And part of what the American experiment was, there's an attempt to define a society where the individual can decide those things, whether he wants to be religious or not, whether he, what he chooses to believe and use his judgment to reach the truth and, and trade with others if they want to trade and not trade with them, if they don't, no, no compulsion. And moving that out of the social context, which is, that is a huge innovation in political thought. It's a huge step forward in human progress. And I think what the national conservatism is trying to do is reverse all that, is to push us back towards a world where it seems like your only options are the religious perspective that you get from the woke, and, and sort of progressive view, and then the, the more traditional religion that we get from national conservatism. So I, I think it's really troubling. And I, I, I think if this is the direction that the, the one side of the political uh, landscape is moving towards, it needs to be uh, understood and, and I think combated because it's, it's certainly not driving us towards a better vision or a, a fuller realization of what America is about, which I think is 
distinctively individualist, even if it's not well understood and, and widely caricatured. Any final thoughts from you, Nikos, before we wrap up? No, the final thought is uh, there's more in this document. For example, we didn't have the time to talk about their view of the free market, their view of individualism. Uh, someone challenges in the Q&A says, no, it's not really, it has only, doesn't really talk about revelation. He does, and I can point you where he does so in the book. So I invite our friends to join us in Clubhouse, where we will continue this discussion and where we will also mention these things that we didn't have time to mention uh, during the during the podcast. Yeah, so welcome. If you can join us on Clubhouse, we'd love to connect with you. And just to, before we close, leave you with some resources if you're interested in looking further into Ayn Rand's perspective on conservatism, her political thought, and just a, sort of the framework that we've been assuming and building on uh, in this conversation. So a couple of resources. One is Ayn Rand's essay, oh, Conservatism and Obituary, and you can find the bit.ly short link for that in the show notes or it's on the screen. And an essay by Leonard Peikoff called Religion versus America. And again, we have a short link for that in the notes. Really powerful analyses of what America is distinctively and how the conservative movement in the past, and I think through the present, in, in, just building on their analysis, is uh, in opposition to the fundamental ideas of individualism and uh, what was distinctive about America and the danger that religion poses to freedom. So I think those are really important uh, pieces you can take a look at. And I think we have a couple more to suggest. I I've written a bit about um, the national conservative movement. Uh, one is uh, in, so we did a podcast on it previously and I also um, written about the movement more broadly. So one is Meet the Conservative Authoritarians, it's an essay I did. And then Keith Lockage and I did a had a conversation about national conservatism uh, in a podcast that's called The Threat of National Conservatism. I'd also suggest, I don't think we have a, a link for this, but something else that people are interested in is a, an essay I wrote about Hazoni's earlier book, the, the Virtue of Nationalism. And my essay is called The Vice of Nationalism. All right, looking a little more closely, at his arguments for nationalism and why I don't think they're uh, valid and in fact they're destructive of freedom. So those are a lot of resources for you if you're interested in exploring more and as always if you've enjoyed this conversation found it valuable please like it on YouTube or whatever platform you're watching leave a comment if you aren't subscribed to our channel on YouTube please do that ring the bell you'll get notifications we'd love to hear from you and as always you can reach us with feedback questions suggestions through email, the address is newideal at einrand.org. We welcome your input. Sometimes we take the questions and turn them into podcasts. Sometimes we try to answer as many of them as we can uh, individually, but we read everything. So love to hear from you uh, if you wanna write. All right, that's all for today. Uh, we have an episode next week, which will be focused on stoicism. A couple of my colleagues will be there to uh, discuss it and usual time Wednesday, 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 Pacific, modernized Stoicism critique. That's the, the agenda for next time. And until then, I hope to meet some of you on Clubhouse if you want to continue the conversation. And otherwise, see you next time. Thanks, Nico. Thanks, Lam. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. 
This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.